When the Romans first came to Britain, carried across the sea on a wave of ambition and curiosity in the middle of the first century BC, they found there, at the edge of the earth, a land of dark forests, mysterious gods, and hostile natives. As Julius Caesar's legions marched forth into the hinterlands, their defensive fortifications complete behind them, warships arrayed along the shore, it soon became clear that a patchwork of chariot-riding Celtic nations held sway over the island. Some of them were closely related to the Gallic and Belgic tribes already well known to Caesar after his lengthy campaigns across the Channel. The vast majority of them didn't take too kindly to the Roman invasion of their homeland. After two concurrent expeditions in 55 and 54 BC, each as bitterly contested as the last, Caesar eventually succeeded in subjugating the natives of the extreme southeasterly region of the island, exacting oaths of allegiance from the nobility and trade rights from the people who lived there. Though before long, political events in Gaul and at the very heart of Rome itself took him and his legions far away to the south, never to return. The various chiefs and war leaders of the Britons might have honoured their oaths for a time, though, as the years turned into decades, for many, the Romans became little more than a lingering ghost, a story to scare their children. It would be a century before they returned again, though this time they were here to stay. Making landfall in 43 AD, the armies of the Roman general Aulus Plautius, dispatched on behalf of the Emperor Claudius and numbering some 20,000 legionaries, swept over the tribes of the southeast, making light work of the still fragmented nations who held sway there. By 60 AD, the Romans had taken over all of the lands south of the Humber, gradually beginning the Romanization of the natives. But, of course, they didn't stop there. Next, the lands of the far north were on the agenda. For the Romans, the very ends of the earth. the head of a huge army consisting of some 20,000 legionaries, Gnaeus Julius Agricola, the rising star of Rome, marched forth by land and by sea, with the largest army ever seen in this part of the world, complete with hardened Germanic auxiliaries, career soldiers in search of plunder and glory, cavalrymen from the Sarmatian steppe, and of course, the elite heavy infantry the heart of any Roman army. Agricola might have hoped for an easy victory, subjugating the locals like the rest of Britain, but what he and his men found there was anything but. What they found there, at the extreme northerly point of the known world, astride the wild Atlantic and the North Sea, was an extraordinarily harsh landscape, an extraordinarily defiant people and, as time would tell, a completely unique set of architectural achievements. 
unlike anything on the rest of the island. This was the land of the Brock Builders. Over 500 of these structures exist throughout the far north of Britain. Built between around 400 BC and 200 AD, these would have been an amazing sight in their heyday. You can find them on Orkney, Shetland, the Western Isles and the Northern Mainland. Nowhere, however, do these structures exist more than Caithness, the most northerly point on the British mainland. Here, right now, a mission is underway to build a complete brock from scratch. This will be the first brock built in nearly 2,000 years. I made this video in order to draw attention to this incredible project taking place in the very heartland of the Brocks. There is just under one week left of fundraising for the project, so I highly recommend you go and check out the fundraising page here, and consider making a small donation to help preserve our common heritage. Up until a few decades ago, and the advent of cutting-edge archaeological techniques such as radiocarbon dating, it was often assumed that brocks came into existence as a result of the Roman invasion of Britain, with high-ranking nobles of southern tribes fleeing from the Roman war machine to take refuge in the far north. As we shall see, this is far from the truth. Our story begins more than 2,000 years before any Roman set foot on British soil. During the Neolithic period of 2,000 years before. The age of the stone circles. Prior to the coming of the Romans, the far north of Britain had always been an important place. This is perhaps best exemplified by the sheer quantity of standing stones and Neolithic monuments that still litter the landscape today. Many of them, such as the Stones of Stennis and the Ring of Kalanish, are thought to have predated the more well-known sites of the south, such as Stonehenge, by hundreds of years. The area is so rich in evidence from this period that some archaeologists, such as Neil Oliver, have gone so far as to suggest the entire region as a quasi-cultural capital of Britain, and even the potential birthplace of a new religion. Yet, of course, as with all ages of human history, the time of the Neolithic farmers would soon come to an end, superseded by a flurry of new ideas and traditions from the continental mainland. Perhaps most important of these was a resource originating continents away in the Middle East, a resource that would soon grant unprecedented power to tribal elites. The Bronze Age was about to begin. Though the Atlantic roundhouses and brocks of the later Iron Age may be the best known and impressive sites that survive today, 
they are by no means the earliest or the most numerous. They were simply the northernmost and latest manifestations of a much wider and older architectural tradition. Beginning sometime around 2000 BC, the Bronze Age seems to have brought with it a significant rise in population and a revolution in architectural ideas throughout Northern Europe. Many hundreds of Bronze Age settlements have been found from this period. In Northern Europe, generally dominated by rectangular buildings. By contrast, in Britain, round, circular houses were being built, perhaps as a result of a merger of native and incoming ideas. Over time, this tradition gave rise to a diverse range of forms throughout the island. Building in both wood and stone, roundhouse architecture remained the primary building style for 2,000 years to come, until the Romans brought with them the rectangular form of the mainland. In the lowland areas of Scotland, timber roundhouses held sway it being the most readily available resource. Of course, meaning that when the structures eventually decayed or were dismantled by future generations, the sites could be ploughed over and flattened, leaving little to no trace in the archaeological record. This was not the case in the north and the west, where a general lack of timber combined with the flat nature of the local flagstone made it an obvious choice for building material. Perhaps the most striking feature is the sheer variety of the Bronze Age roundhouses. Some stood at least seven metres tall, dominating the local landscapes, perhaps forming power centres for local elites, such as those discovered on the Shetland Islands, whereas others were sunken into the ground. No doubt, untold multitudes of others were built in timber, and thus lost to the ages. Leaving no evidence of the mighty kings and chieftains who once held sway over the region. Just like their Neolithic forebears, in due course, the time of the Bronze Age elites would come to an end too. Though the tower building tradition experimented with by some would become a mainstay of the next age, becoming its defining feature. By around 1000 BC, perhaps ushered in by a series of climactic and environmental disturbances, a new culture and a new metal would take hold in the far north of Britain. An age of iron. Given the fairly marginal landscape of northern Scotland, the prosperity and the growth of the Bronze Age could never last. And ultimately, a combination of deforestation, unsustainable farming techniques and an unstable climactic period seem to have led to a gradual degradation of much of the landscape, followed by a near total abandonment or downsizing 
of the largest Bronze Age sites. Many would be repopulated again later, but on a smaller, more concentrated scale. As a result of the harsh Atlantic winds of the north preventing forests from again taking hold, the decline in tree cover during the Bronze Age became a permanent fixture. Thus, the early Iron Age landscape in the north and the west of Scotland in the first millennium BC were not too dissimilar from those we see today. The Hebrides, Orkney, Shetland and Caithness in particular being open and largely treeless, just as they remain today. The archaeological evidence tends to suggest that people culminated around pockets of cultivated land, often near coastal fringes, set within wider areas of rough open pasture. In North West, for example, large tracts of land that had been farmed for centuries were abandoned entirely, with people seeming to head to the coasts in search of a new beginning. But, of course, in most areas, unless the Bronze Age collapse was accompanied by a drop in population, people would have already lived in the new lands, leading to competition and conflict. The first of the complex Atlantic roundhouses known as Brocks, eventually culminating in the mighty towers of the late Iron Age, were first built in this context, by people whose ties to the land were increasingly insecure, within a climate of increased competition or conflict between societies. At first, the sites might have been fairly small scale, but as time went on, they became larger and larger. By stamping themselves on the land, farming communities could make a clear claim to ownership and control over their territory. And whilst they wouldn't be able to hold out during a lengthy siege, it's unlikely that armies of such a size existed during this time, making Brocks perfectly capable of protecting their inhabitants from any potential enemies. Dominated by massively built stone walls and expertly built to keep out the elements, Brocks represent an attempt by the people of the early Iron Age to put down roots, to maintain some sense of order in an increasingly chaotic world. And uniquely in Northern Europe, they did so in stone. Brocks often occupy the long abandoned sites of Bronze Age hill forts and roundhouses, such as in Laird in Sutherland, which overlooks the grassed over remains of Bronze Age farms and fields. Some of the earliest and the most impressive of the Iron Age brocks are found on Orkney, at sites such as Boo, constructed between around 800 and 400 BC. Another example is at Piera Wall and at the Howe of Howe, which is built over the remains of a Neolithic chamber tomb. The sheer quantity and the size of sites on Orkney and Shetland has in the past led a number of investigators to hypothesise an Orcadian or Shetland origin for the Brock building culture. From around 500 to 200 BC, 
the first complex roundhouses began to be built. The first real brocks. Usually with completely unique architecture that could only be the result of a multi-generational tradition spanning hundreds of years. Over time, the people who lived in these buildings developed intimate ties with them, the sites having been built by their ancestors. Eventually, the Brocks became important communal and perhaps even spiritual centres. One of the best known and earliest from this period was found at Crosskirk at Caithness, long since lost to sea erosion. The site was complete with impressive defensive fortifications at front, perhaps to awe visitors, rather than to be genuinely defensive, due to its incomplete nature. In 1947, researcher Angus Graham made a statistical analysis of over 500 brocks and the remains of brock-like structures. Undertaken during a time when the origin of the brocks was still a complete mystery, the work is still invaluable today. One of the main conclusions of the study was that the most elaborate Brock towers were the result of an architectural tradition spanning many centuries. The largest and most elaborate are clearly the work of huge amounts of manpower. Only five Brocks are known to have survived in much their original height the most impressive being Musa in Shetland, standing at 13.3 metres tall. Duncarloway in Lewis is another at 9.2 metres. Duntrodan at 7.6 metres and Duntelv at 10 are situated on the mainland opposite Skye. And Dundornagale in Sutherland is 6.7 metres tall. Any others that once stood so tall perhaps throughout Orkney and Caithness, which has the most brocks of anywhere, are now unrecognisable after millennia of stone robbing, decay and erosion. Though many mysteries still remain, it's thought that the skills required to make brocks were almost entirely insular, having been passed down from generation to generation and needing no outside help, besides timber from the lowlands, which may have been bartered for. Although they survive as nothing more than stone towers, like the castles of the medieval period, significant amounts of wood was also required for construction. Brocks likely being finished with soaring conical roofs made of long straight timbers, spanning 12 metres or more. Inside the brocks, we find a number of fascinating features. Ground floors are generally divided into a number of separate rooms, with a guard cell immediately at the gateway. A ritual well or hearth tends to be at the centre of the building, perhaps suggesting some kind of religious association or a ceremonial centre. It's worth noting that the religion of these people is almost entirely unknown leaving very few remnants in the archaeological record. We find no Iron Age graves, and we simply don't know how they dealt with their dead. Though every so often, 
Body parts are found in the brocks, sometimes mixed in with animal bones. Though the spread of brock architecture along the Atlantic coasts and over the islands suggests a high degree of communication between communities, it's thought that they were mostly self-sufficient units, small farming states with little need for lengthy cooperation with their neighbours. Perhaps the most important and profitable contacts would have been through marriage alliances between communities, often in return for gifts from each area. Though as these may have been mostly perishable foodstuff, they are largely lost to the archaeological record. The brockmakers did make their own products, such as excavated pottery found at Dunmore Vowel and Duntroden. Brock finds include stone lamps, bone tools, combs, painted pebbles, saddle querns, and evidence of metalworking moulds. Though iron itself is notoriously difficult to preserve over long periods of time. Some brocks in areas of good land may have housed large populations, with people also living in dependent territories outside of the brock. Other sites on less arable land may have been located close to natural resources, such as red deer or seals for oil, skins and meat, or bird colonies from where they could trade eggs and meat with their neighbours. At Dunmore Vowel and Dunbarabat, for example, evidence has been found of large-scale use of red deer, which may have been semi-domesticated herds. By around 200 BC, after years of equilibrium, a change seems to have overcome Orkney, with the abandonment of many brock sites, culminating in the construction, or at least the significant enlargement, of a single site. The Brock of Gurness is unique in all of Scotland as one of the largest and one of the most impressive of all brocks. This was perhaps the home of the first centralising power of the region, with a number of experts surmising that the level of sophistication found here seems to suggest a rule over the entire island chain. Soon enough, as we enter the first millennium AD, a new type of pottery begins to show up in the archaeological record particularly in the southernmost sites. Just a few pieces at first, but telling of a new age about to dawn. The origins of these pieces lie far to the south, in the Mediterranean. These were Roman-made, and everything in the north was about to change. By the time Agricola arrived in the north, towards the end of the first century AD, the Brock-building culture of the late Iron Age was in full swing, though its days were numbered. It is just after this time that we get the very first written evidence of Scotland, in the form of a history written by Agricola's son-in-law, Tacitus. 
According to Tacitus, the land was divided into numerous people, most notably the Caledonians, but also a number of other tribes. He even talks of a king from Orkney submitting to the Emperor Claudius in 43 AD. Though this was initially thought to be little more than literary flair, recent pottery shards found at the Brock of Gurness, dating to around 60 AD, do lend credence to this. Agricola advanced with his armies north, harrying as he went, seeking to meet the Britons in a decisive battle. It wasn't long before that day came, the tribes apparently coming together to face the new invader. In 83 AD, on the slopes of the Grampian Mountains, Caledonian ferocity met Roman steel, with Agricola's fierce Germanic mercenaries driving back the huge force in disarray, losing only a handful of men in the process. Roman equipment and prowess was simply too great for the Caledonian Confederacy to deal with. Though in the weeks that followed, the natives simply disappeared back into the mountains and forests they called home, some no doubt retreating back to seek refuge in the defensive brocks of the far north. In the years that followed, Agricola established several forts in the north, completing a circumnavigation of the island as well. Though before long, he would be recalled to Rome by the jealous emperor Domitian, never to return. Though the Romans never successfully conquered the north of Scotland, the impact of their arrival completely transformed the region forever. Never before had an external enemy of such power threatened the region, and new, larger tribal groupings began to form as a result. Like all areas the Romans came into contact with, they inevitably rubbed off on the inhabitants of the area. Roman items become commonplace in the archaeological record, and curiously, brocks begin to appear far to the south of their traditional region. Sites such as Torwoodley and Eden's Hall may represent northern brock builders heading south to take advantage of the chaotic situation. Though within a few decades of their construction, they were completely destroyed by fire potentially by the Romans, or another British tribe. The landscape was simply too wild, and the Roman numbers too thin to be able to fully subjugate the north. Instead, by the second century AD, the Emperor Hadrian built a wall across the north of the province. This was followed by another wall further north, built by Antoninus Pius. And finally, in 207 AD, the Emperor Septimus Severus led the largest military expedition ever yet seen on the British Isles, deep into the highlands, launching a genocidal campaign against the locals. The region would never be the same again. It is then, however, as the 3rd century crisis took hold of the Roman Empire and the slow decline began, that the denizens of the far north finally began to fight back. 
In 297, we have the first mentions of a new people, the descendants of the Brock Builders. The Romans called them the Picts. Reaching their heyday just as Rome fell, it was soon the turn of the Picts to harry the Romans, spilling over the borders of the empire in the mid-4th century and ruling over the region for hundreds of years to come. Some Brock sites continued to be inhabited, being incorporated into new hill forts. Others, however, were simply left to the elements. By the time the Vikings arrived in the 9th century, like the Neolithic sites before them, the Brocks had already taken on a mysterious, mythic identity. The last remnants of a long bygone age.